Welcome to the Kindness Podcast. I'm Nicole Phillips. Dan Tran is bringing kindness to the doctor's office and other cancer survivors after he was diagnosed with lung cancer at age 30 during his second year of medical residency as an oral surgeon. Dan is now back to work with a whole new perspective on what it's like to be on the other side of the stethoscope. The experience taught the young father that life isn't guaranteed and we could all benefit from a dose of kindness. Dr. Tran, thank you so much for talking with me today. I am excited for our Kindness Podcast listeners to get to know you. And I'm wondering if you would just start out by sharing, like, who are the special people to you and, and um, you know, what matters to you? Yeah, of course. Um, the special people to me would be my wife and my daughter, me, my family, of course. I mean, that's special to uh, most people, I would hope. Uh, I have a three-year-old daughter now. Her name is Avery. And then I have uh, my wife. We've been married for seven years now. And it's uh, uh, they have been pretty much what helps me go on and do everything I do. And they kind of help lead any kind of decision-making that I ever need to make. Uh, anytime I try to have a big decision I need to think about, I think about, well, what, how is this going to affect them? And so they've kind of been my guiding light throughout this whole journey especially recently um, since I was uh, diagnosed. Right. So your life, it may have been swimming along, you know, just fine. And then all of a sudden this massive diagnosis comes And It was really out of left field for you, wasn't it? It was. And um, it kind of came out of nowhere, had no idea, was not even on my radar. Um, for those that, you don't, that don't know, um, I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And it was kind of a shock uh, to me and to everybody. I had no idea, had had no way to predict that it was going to happen. I was 30 years old at the time. I didn't smoke, had no risk factors for it. And for it to be diagnosed with lung cancer was kind of like, whoa, I didn't know this was possible. And it kind of raised my awareness for it. Um, it all started back in uh, 2017, I was still in residency at the time. I was in residency for oral and facial surgery, and I was on my anesthesia rotation. I kind of felt like it was supposed to be a vacation period because a lot of people talk about that rotation being a pretty relaxed rotation. You, you have normal work hours, which is very rare to have mm -hmm. during residency. Uh, but I started developing a bunch of back pain and numbness, and I was like, man, am I just like working too hard? I just had a daughter. She was three months old. Um, and I was like, maybe I'm picking her up too much, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was causing my back pain and numbness. And so I kind of just let it fall to the back of my mind. But then it got worse and worse to the point where I couldn't sleep at night. I was sleeping on the couch, like, with my back, like, sitting straight up with pillows propped to the left and right like I was on an airplane. Because mm -hmm. uh, I literally couldn't lay back flat. And then I took a week off to see if I would just recover by just not going to work, which is... Uh, a, uh, a difficult task in itself to take a week off during residency, right. but they were fortunate enough to let me do it. And then finally at the end of that week, I told myself there's something definitely wrong because my legs are starting to get numb, my back's not getting any better. And I finally decided to go to the emergency department and say, uh, and figure out what's going on. I thought I just had a slip disc or something, mm -hmm. even though I was only 30 and I was like, I I'm too young for this. <laughs> um, as soon as I uh, got there, I told them I wanted an MRI. Uh, I knew something was wrong. Just can you guys just get me an MRI? I had one scheduled before, but it was 
it was going to be too late. And I thought that this is getting too bad for me to wait anymore. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to get the MRI, um, I knew that's kind of when I knew something was really wrong because being in the medical field, I got the MRI done uh, or uh, MRI done. And then they told me to stay there. Oh. They paused for about two or three minutes. And then they said, we're going to go do some more pictures or imaging. And that's kind of like when I started having suspicion that something was really wrong. Um, I then got into the wheelchair uh, out of the MRI and I asked them, I was like, oh, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Uh, why'd you guys get some more x-rays? And they pretty much said, oh, the doctor just wanted to get a little bit more. Uh, and he also wants to talk to you. And I knew at that point it was bad <sighs> um, because the radiologist, uh, I'm not sure if you know radiologists, but they don't really talk to patients or treat patients or anything. Right. Uh, they look at x-rays only, and then they write a report and send it out. And they mainly talk to other doctors. Uh, they very rarely ever talk to patients. And the nurse telling me that he wants to talk to me personally, uh, I, I knew for sure that this was not going to be a, a kind of a good news situation. So walked into the room he had everything out there on all the computer screens and he told me what was going on. He said, I don't know for sure what this is, but it doesn't look good. Um, and you know, you start running through your mind, all the possible diagnosis. Uh, and I was trying to run through all the, you know, the things that could be fixed easily, uh, infections, uh, hematomas, just random things that I thought could be fixed easily. And he, and he told me pretty bluntly that this is most likely cancer. Um, and then it was from then on that this kind of just this like blow and I kind of sat there, kind of felt a little defeated, had to go back to the, uh, emergency room where my wife was waiting for me and kind of break the news to her. And I think that was probably the part where, um, that was definitely the hardest part. Um, kind of telling everybody else, I don't know why that is. I think it's because. I'm just worried about how they're feeling and about their future and, and kind of, uh, I don't want them to worry, but, uh, that was definitely the hardest part of the whole thing. Good news though is, um, I was able to get treatment done pretty quick. Uh, they found out on further scanning that my back was actually fractured and that's why I had so much pain. The tumor had eaten away so much of my spine that it, um, it caused my spine to collapse. Wow. And I had to have spinal fusion uh, a couple days later or else the numbness would be forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so they sent me to emergency surgery and then I waited on the biopsy results, which came back as lung cancer with a specific targetable mutation that lets me take these pills every day that kind of puts the lung cancer to sleep. And now I just get CT scans every three years or I mean, every uh, three months. I was going to say three years. No, three months. Yeah, they're keeping yeah. a close, close three eye months, on you. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, my mind is rolling with questions. As as you being a doctor, I'm wondering, did you was it one of those situations where you had just enough information to be dangerous, where because you had had training in the medical field? It was. I thought it was a kind of a double edged sword. Um, uh, uh, a lot of doctors will tell you some of the worst patients are other doctors. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's so true though, because uh, it's just like you were saying, you know, just a little bit too much, but not quite enough to have a full understanding of anything. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for me, 
it was extremely helpful to have access to resources such as scientific journals and articles and and areas that I can read up on my own. Mm -hmm. But it was also kind of disheartening because because I knew how to look up these articles. I knew that all these prognosis, I was like, what is going on here? Everywhere I keep reading, it says that I'm only going to have six months to live. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was kind of where I started realizing I can't I can't read this part anymore. I have mm-hmm. to just kind of sit back and wait for some more of the biopsy results because when they told me I had lung cancer, they they told me that I potentially had a targetable mutation. What that means is a mutation that I can try to shut down the lung cancer. And um, I didn't know if I did or not, so I just looked about lung cancer in general, and it was just such a grim outlook. Mm-hmm. And that kind of made it a little bit more difficult. The good news, though, and the plus side of being a physician is able to kind of look into that was I was able to kind of develop and read about all the most recent advances and find a oncologist that I really jived with. And I kind of, I guess, quizzed him uh unofficially and was asking him about certain topics that I already knew the answer to. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to know what his answer was. And he just nailed every single mm. question, answer down to the year the study was done. And I was just so impressed with him uh, that now he's my oncologist and I couldn't be happier. That's great to have somebody that you really trust in that position. So did you ever get to the point in all of your research where you were really curious about why uh, you had gotten lung cancer and or was your research all in how do I treat this how do I stop this my research was on um prognosis how long I had and how I treated it um I got to the point where uh, I I wasn't thinking too much about why at the time Mm -hmm. because it wasn't gonna help me in any way if anything it may make me feel worse. Mm-hmm. So it, it, at that point, it didn't really matter to me why it happened to me. It's unfortunate. I mean, things happen to people all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my research was focused on uh, why this happened and and, uh, and how to treat it. And not just scientific research, but uh, kind of the reasons why I had started the blog originally was to talk about my personal blog about uh, lung cancer was to inform patients and or sorry, inform my friends and families about my diagnosis, kind of keep everybody in the loop because they were all so worried about me, uh, rightfully so. And I wanted to let them know how I was doing, how I was progressing, what treatment I was receiving. But I also thought that with the blog, um, it was very helpful for me to, to find other lung cancer patients who had a blog because with all the articles and journals and science, um, it gives you a bunch of numbers, it gives you statistics, and and it's great for a doctor to help treat patients to kind of know what works, what doesn't, to know the probability of something working. But it, those articles, all the medical jargon, it doesn't provide a humanistic point of view about the patient going through this, mm-hmm. the person who has to be on the other end. And so um, the blogs that I found online I, I wanted to hear real stories about real people and their journeys. Mm-hmm. And after finding out that, you know, lung cancer has a pretty bad mortality rate, um, not many people make it past six months to a year, I wanted to find outliers. I wanted to find people out there who had a blog and could provide some hope. And I was able to find a, a few 
but they're not very many. And so I kind of thought, hey, let me have this blog, not only to inform uh, my friends and family, but maybe somebody else is kind of going through this can see that there are treatments that I uh, you can live a relatively normal life, hopefully full life, and kind of show them that there's a little bit of hope out there, mm-hmm. uh, as well as tests that you should probably take because uh, not many people know, hey, I'm three years old, got diagnosed with lung cancer, what do I do now? How do I get treated? Who do I go look for? What do I need to look out for? Mm-hmm. And those kind of things I thought would have been helpful for me when I first got diagnosed. So in 2015, I was diagnosed with um, stage two breast cancer. And the first thing I did was uh, start a blog. And I did it specifically for the same reasons you did as far as just keeping everyone in the know. It was too exhausting to tell everyone um, what was going on. And by everyone, I mean my brothers and my sister, my brother and my sister and my parents. It was like by the time I repeated the story once for my husband or, you know, a good friend, it was like, okay, that's all I can talk about it now. (laughs) So, so it was good to have the blog to be able to just let everybody know everyone had the information that I had. And, um, but what I found during that, was and and you know I really did want to give people hope as well. I always tried to make sure that there was something in there that just was, you know, to help people see the silver lining in life. And but what I found in that was that I found it very cathartic to be able to express how I was feeling on any given day through that blog. Did you find that you were able to process things in your mind better because you wrote them down, or was that not the case for you? For me, it it definitely helped process it. It kind of helped me um, digest it, I guess is a good way to say Mm -hmm, it. -hmm. Uh, At least in the initial uh, blog post, because, I mean, you get hit with that diagnosis, like getting hit into a brick wall. It's just, it's, it's such a drastic change to your daily life. Um, and just to kind of figure out and make sure that I was hearing this all correctly. Like, this is real. Is this really happening right now? Mm-hmm. And so writing it all down, getting it all in one spot uh, definitely helped for that. It also helped. I, I also wrote the blog. Um, another main driver was at the time I was diagnosed, my daughter was only three months old. Mm-hmm. And so I really had no idea how long I had. But I wanted to have some kind of written, I guess, log or journey uh, for her to potentially read in the future mm-hmm. to kind of know like what I had gone through. And uh, in case for ever some reason or for some reason that I wasn't there for her in the future, um, she would know why. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a writer. So for me, and I have three kids. So for me, it's, it's, Absolutely, I want them to hear their mother's voice. I want them to someday be able to hear my voice and, you know, and and know who I was in in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, I understand that. You know, the other thing that really touched me was you talking about going into the waiting room and having to tell your wife. And I, I know that my husband wasn't with me when I got the diagnosis. And and you're right, like to tell that person that means so much to you and who loves you so much 
it's it was almost more devastating than, than hearing the words it's cancer because I wanted to be able to protect him and his feelings from it. Uh, did you find that there was a way that you could um, help your wife feel supported as she was trying to support you? I, it was, it, it was tough at first. Um, we both kind of sat down there and just thought about it. And, uh, uh when we had the, when I first had the diagnosis and tried to figure out what we were going to do next, um, it's definitely been, she's definitely been the one to support me more. That's for sure. Uh, she has supported me so much throughout this whole process, uh, as well as even before this diagnosis. Uh, like I said earlier, she's my rock. She's she's done everything and everything she could possibly do for our family. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried to support her as well as far as giving her hope and letting her know, hey, uh, we don't know anything yet. Uh, when I was first diagnosed, and that's I think that's kind of helped both of us. Uh, the more you say it, the more you believe it, mm-hmm. and so and the more I was supporting her and letting her know, hey, like this is not the end all be all. We don't know anything yet. The more it kind of solidified that same feeling for me, even though, I mean, as a cancer patient, you don't, you have that hope and you don't always a hundred percent believe it, but if you can 80 or 90% believe it and kind of get to that rest, mm-hmm. that, that that's enough. And I thought, I felt that by supporting her and letting her know that kind of helped both of us. Mm-hmm. So knowing what it feels like to tell your wife, knowing what it feels like to be in a home where you have a three-month-old daughter that you don't know what's, you know, what's going to come next for you, has that changed the way that you deal with patients? I have been lucky enough to um, to be in a field where we don't. It's very rare that we have life and death uh, conversations. Um, it does happen occasionally. Occasionally, I do find patients who have cancer and and have to break that news to them. Um, and it has changed the way I talk to those patients, as well as any patients who need some large or major surgery that may disfigure their face. Um, at first, I was having a hard time trying to figure out how to, if I should tell patients, Many patients, I don't tell them anything. I mean, it's it's usually routine treatment that I do for them, and I don't want to burden them with any any of my troubles, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few hand uh, a handful of patients that I have told, um, and it's not it's not that it's uh, it's it's already public knowledge. It's all over the internet. I I, I tell people all the time about it, and so um, it's not that I'm telling them something that I'm trying to hide. Uh, but I'm just making them more aware. Uh, recently, there was a, a family who came in, and they had this 10-year-old with this large tumor in their jaw, and they started struggling with the idea of having to cut his jaw pretty much off, and we have to reconstruct it. But um, I told them the options, the plans, and I and I kind of told them what I would recommend, especially with my daughter. I kind of gave them hope too. I, I told them, "Hey, it's it's a benign disease. It's it's not cancer. It's not mm-hmm. a malignancy. There's a lot of hope. He can have the hope of living a relatively normal life." Mm-hmm. And they struggled with that decision. They struggled with how is that possible. And I kind of, and that's when I told them about me. I told them that I was diagnosed with 
stage four lung cancer. I currently have cancer. I'm still receiving treatment for it. And here I am helping your son and I'm trying to live myself a relatively normal life as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought that really resonated with them because by the end of that appointment, we really connected as far as from a physician and, and patient perspective. I felt like we weren't really like that anymore. We were more like friends and families versus a doctor and a patient. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of helps certain types of patients mentally wrap their head around uh, surgeries or diagnoses that they may receive. Yeah, there's something just inherently kind about being vulnerable with another person, you know, in in the right amounts, I would say probably within the profession, but being being truthful and vulnerable with that person and allowing them to see like, okay, I'm not just the stethoscope. I'm not just, you know, um, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have, um, any thoughts on kindness, stories of kindness that have resonated with you, uh, through this whole journey. I do. And I, um, I, I have one particular, uh, instance that was, just kind of fighting for me throughout this struggle um, during my initial diagnosis. Um, residency, as you know, is, I'm sure many people know, is brutal. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and it can become even more brutal if you're miserable going to work. But for me, I've been fortunate enough to have matched in when I had finished, before I finished my residency, when I was in residency, I matched into a residency that um, had a pretty good culture of family and, and just well-being um and it came to the point where they were kind of like my second family um you spend more time at work when you're a resident than you do with your own family mm-hmm. uh the stories of re- medical residents and other residents spending 80 to 100 hour work weeks those all those stories are true uh sometimes even more than that and it's kind of crazy to think how is that physically possible right. um but when you don't sleep and you work weekends that's how it's possible <laughs> Um, and for me, I don't know if it would have been the same if I had been in any other place because here is just the people around me right here is just amazing. My co-residents and attendings were so understanding when I had my diagnosis. I, I know I'm, I have a feeling that if I was anywhere else, if I had this diagnosis, I would have seemed like a burden, but not here, um, at VCU, uh, all the, all my colleagues were so helpful. Uh, when I first, after I had my surgery, there was a big snowstorm that came in uh, uh, into Virginia and had laid down about two or three feet of snow uh, in my driveway. And I needed my driveway to be open because I needed to get to my radiation appointment for my spine. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't shovel my driveway because I just had spine surgery. And so um, I told them about this and in about 30 to 45 minutes, they all dropped everything. They had enough people to cover their clinics. Any spare person came out to my house, shoveled my entire driveway, spread salt. I didn't even ask them to do that. Spread salt everywhere uh, and then and then left. Um, and mm-hmm. I was just astounded at the fact that they were able to just do that for me. Um, they brought me food via meal trains. Uh, they called and checked up on me almost every day for several months not even like a, a one-time thing, like almost every day for several months. They came over for holidays, uh, the initial holidays when I was diagnosed, because I was diagnosed in December. Mm-hmm. 
And even now, it's it's easy for me to adjust my work schedule uh, around my doctor's appointments because of them, because of my colleagues and and uh, and the residents at the time when I was doing residency, and it was their act of kindness that I just it just made me feel even more like family with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all matters. All of those little things add up into just the biggest things and make us feel supported. Wow. Dr. Tran, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really, really appreciate you sharing uh, your powerful story. And I wish you just great health and total healing as you continue your journey. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me. That was a conversation with Dr. Dan Tran. You can follow his journey at danfightscancer.com. Thanks for listening to The Kindness Podcast. It's produced by WOUB Public Media and relies heavily on the kindness of engineer Adam Rich. I'm Nicole Phillips. We hope you'll subscribe to The Kindness Podcast wherever you listen and find us on social media at Kindness Podcast. If you like the show, please spread some kindness in the review section. And check out my book, The Negativity Remedy, now available in stores. 